The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. So again, my name is Judd Mal. I'm a urologist at Duke University. Um, Larry, Dr. Larry Karsh is a urologist in uh, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, Urology Center of Colorado, and Dr. Alicia Morgans is at Harvard. She's a medical oncologist. This is our multidisciplinary program on advanced prostate cancer. I think Dr. Karsh and I were discussing it. This is this must be, I think, the tenth year. So. Uh, you know, I hope the AUA does, maybe they'll boot us out, but we've had a 10-year run on this since Provenge, I think, and uh, things have changed a lot. I want to read uh, some statements that we're supposed to do at the beginning of the course. AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters must disclose prior to their presentation all financial relationships with any commercial interests. These disclosures are also posted on the AUA annual meeting website. No, um, no photos, video, or audio recordings are permitted. I know that's a bummer. I'm on Twitter, but I guess I'm not allowed to send any tweets. Uh, courses are selected based on evaluation results. Uh, for every course evaluation that you're com you complete, your name will be entered into a drawing for a complimentary uh, Porsche 911. Oh, no, it's a registration for AUA 2023 in Chicago. Uh, winners will be announced in June, uh, and you can evaluate the session uh, for every course of, uh, you can evaluate the session um, on your AUA registration, uh, select evaluate through the credit claim process, or you can go to the AUA 2022 mobile app. Um, the other thing we're delighted to say that this course has been selected for live stream, so I want to welcome everyone who is joining us uh, virtually online. And um, so without further ado, I'm going to uh, turn the podium over to Dr. Karsh, who's going to give the first presentation. Thank you, Judd. It's an honor to be here again with you uh, for I don't know how many years we've been doing this together, and uh, as well as Dr. Morgans, who joined us for the first time this year. So I'm going to be talking about metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Let's see. You have to navigate these slides. Is the control? That's it. It's not on the left. Okay. Got it. So these are my disclosures, and I'm going to start with a tale of two prostate cancer patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So the first one, uh, a 65-year-old male who was diagnosed with Gleason 6, 7, and 9 prostate cancer uh, and had a PSA of 6.3. He underwent a radical prostatectomy. His bone scan and, and CT scans were negative. Uh, his post-op PSA was 0.13. He had ADT uh, for six months along with uh, external beam radiation. PSA became non-detectable. And that was in 2016. 2020, he comes back with a rising PSA, 0.9, and it went up to 4.94. Uh, we did a CT and bone scan, which was negative. 
He had a flu cyclovine PET CT, which demonstrated some periaortal and aortal cable lymph node enlargement. He underwent SBRT to those nodes. We tried to see if we could make them ADT free. PSA natured at 2.88. And then at the end of 2021, his PSA went up to eight. Uh, we did not have uh, any kind of uh, PSMA imaging at that point uh, available, but we did a CT scan and uh, a bone scan was negative. His CT scan showed that those nodes actually got a little smaller but his PSA was up and in early 2022, it was up to 13.8. Uh, we still could not get a PSMA CT because it uh, hadn't been operationalized yet in our neighborhood. Uh, his CT uh, nodes uh, were increased and he had three bone lesions uh, in the pelvis and one in the rib, so he had four bone lesions. Uh, we did germline testing, it was negative. We didn't have tissue available to check for P10 loss. That's one of the studies that we look at. Uh, and he did not want to undergo uh, bone biopsy and it was very difficult to try to get those nodes uh, that were in his uh, retroperitoneum. So we did not have any uh, tissue testing. So you diagnose high volume metachronous. Now metachronous is a new term that we're using for recurrent uh, 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 cancer after primary treatment with uh, radiation or, or surgery, uh, but you're gonna see that uh, terminology floating around now. Uh, but how would you treat this patient? So this is not, we don't have ARS for this, but I'm gonna kind of get a show of hands. How many would treat this patient with ADT, ADT only? How many would do ADT plus a novel hormone like Abby or Enza or APA? Okay, good number. Uh, how about ADT plus six cycles of chemotherapy? We have an oncologist in the group back there. Okay, and how about D, ADT plus NHT and six cycles of docetaxel? Who would do that? Yeah. Okay, all right. And then a clinical trial. We always offer clinical trials, but we're gonna come back and discuss these questions a little bit more. Case two, we have a 55-year-old male uh, who was diagnosed uh, with Gleason 9 uh, in 2022, earlier this year. He had a PSA of 55. He had CT and bone scans were negative. And he was scheduled for a radical prostatectomy. He came to see me for a second opinion. Uh, we managed to get a PSMA PET CT. Uh, and uh, he had to go to San Diego from Colorado to get it because we didn't, again, have it operationalized. We do now. We have more and more that we're doing. But he had diffuse pelvis retroperitoneal and mediastinal nodes uh, that were positive as well as a bone met in his pelvis. He underwent germline and somatic testing. We had fresh tissue uh, from his biopsies for the testing, and he was BRCA2 positive. Uh, he was PT, P10 proficient, so we did not have P10 loss. Uh, now, when you do somatic testing, you might see some of these HRR mutations, but unless you do germline testing as well, you don't know if it's germline because sometimes you can have it in the tissue and it's not germline, but he had uh, uh, germline and it, it will show up in the, in the tissue as well. So you diagnose low. Now I have a question mark here, and this is for our panel later, we'll have a little discussion. Is this really low or is this high volume de novo 
metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, and he was BRCA2 positive. So how would you treat this patient? ADT, anybody? Okay, ADT plus NHT or six cycles of docetaxel. Okay, how about ADT, NHT, and six do cycles of docetaxel? Not too many, okay. How about ADT and a PARP? Okay, we'll talk about all these answers, and then we also have a clinical trial. So, uh, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna, so do you think that, I, I mean, I agree with your management, although some people may argue that you, because he was young and healthy, uh, he might have had, should have had the radical prostatectomy, even though you would diagnose the metastatic disease later. And I know there's no level one evidence, but gosh, with that prostate, you know, you, uh, playing, you know, just playing devil's advocate as a surgeon. You are exactly right. And um, we are going to consolidate his treatment, but we, we felt that it's important to uh, treat him systemically now. Because uh, he, you know, even though he's got node, uh, diffuse node disease and a one bone lesion, uh, you know, he could, uh, and we can have this discussion yeah. a little later, but, um, but, you know, PSA 55, we'll talk about some of these uh, uh, characteristics of some of the um, uh, patients in the uh, charted in LAD2 trial. But this is, uh, there aren't too many papers uh, that are still quoted, um, like this seminal paper from Huggins in uh, 1941, uh, where uh, he described treating uh, patients, uh, metastatic patients with ADT. And really 80 years later, uh, ADT is still the foundation treatment for metastatic, whether it's uh, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, uh, it's still the foundation treatment. And that was really uh, until 2015, now that we have uh, the intensification era uh, uh, so now that really seems to be the standard of care, but we have intensification with docetaxel, then abiraterone, then apalutamide, enzalutamide, and now darolutamide is getting into the mix. So there were two Nobel Prize laureates in prostate cancer and in ADT, Charles Huggins. Uh, he didn't get that uh, Nobel Prize until 1966, uh, and then Andrew Shalley, in 1977 for his discoveries that led to uh, Lupron, uh, Luprolide development. So what's new in ADT? We have an oral antagonist now. It's uh, Relagolix, and it met its primary and secondary endpoints of sustained castration and non-inferiority to Luprolide. You know, from 1940 until 1985, the mainstay treatment was surgical castration. Then we get the analogs uh, that were developed in 1985. So we had uh, injectable luprolide in, in 1985. And then we had an injectable antagonist in 2008. And now we have an oral antagonist. Now there was a 54% reduction in the risk of major cardiovascular events in this HERO trial. But there's a caveat here. This was not a pre-specified uh, endpoint uh, in the study, it was a pre-specified safety analysis that the uh, FDA wanted uh, to determine whether or not there were more or less uh, MACE events. Uh, now, there's been a number of studies that have been done and a lot of pooled analyses. They were non-propensity matched. 
and they suggested that there were less cardiovascular events with the antagonist. There was really only one study that was set out and designed to uh, compare the antagonist to the agonist and determine whether or not there were in increased cardiac, uh, uh, cardiovascular events. And it was the pronounced trial. And it did not show a difference. Now, the caveat is that they planned to put 900 patients in the trial. It was very difficult to accrue. They had some very strict requirements for cardiovascular events. It was an adjudicated study, uh, whereas in the HERO, that was not adjudicated. Um, but it was an adjudicated study. And uh, although they didn't get the number of patients that they wanted, uh, they did look at the results earlier after about 500 patients and did not find a difference. So this is the clinical states model. We're focused on uh, MHSPC, newly diagnosed or de novo, or primary progressive who uh, have occurred after primary treatment like radiation or surgery. Uh, and again, uh, there's a new term we're floating around called metachronous for that. Uh, but regardless, when these patients uh, progress on ADT, uh, they then are now non-metastatic, uh, they're metastatic CRPC, which is the lethal, the lethal stage of this disease. So we define metastatic CSPC as metastatic disease, uh, and patients have not progressed on ADT or have not started ADT. But you're going to see a lot of different terms in the literature that mean the same thing. Metastatic hormone sensitive, metastatic hormone naive, metastatic castration naive, metastatic non-castrate prostate cancer. But regardless, these are all patients who have metastatic prostate cancer have not yet developed castration resistance. So are there differences between de novo versus progressive disease or patients who have uh, progressed after uh, uh, local therapy? Well, there's not a lot of high science and data out there. And there's an intrinsic belief that uh, de novo disease has a more aggressive biology. So this was a small study, it's retrospective, but it would at least suggest that, in fact, patients with de novo disease do worse. So these are all the approved agents for metastatic CSPC based on these studies. Uh, we have docetaxel, abi, enzalutamide, apalutamide, and soon we'll probably see daralutamide on that list. Uh, but uh, one thing that I want to say is that all of the studies that we have done and we continue to do are based on conventional imaging. So I know there's a working group that is uh, trying to figure out how to integrate the advanced imaging into these clinical trials. And maybe uh, I can ask Dr. Morgan's uh, here at the end here what she thinks and if we're going to start seeing more trials with advanced imaging. Uh, in those trials. But let's look at the characteristics of the enrolled patients in the charted latitude and stampede. Char charted was a volume uh, definition. High volume was presence of visceral mets uh, and four or more bone lesions with one outside the axial skeleton or the vertebral bodies and pelvis. And the alternative was low volume. Latitude uh, was a little different. It looked at a, a pathologic and volume uh, definition. So you require to have at least two of these three prognostic features, a Gleason score of eight or greater, greater than or, uh, three, three or more bone lesions, and measurable, measurable visceral mets. And this is not terribly inconsistent with a high volume group in charted. Stampede, different. 
It included M0 patients, so that they were newly diagnosed, metastatic, node positive, or high uh, risk locally advanced uh, with at least two of these uh, three features, T3-4, Gleason 8 to 10, and or PSA of 40 or greater. So the question now is, is intensified treatment upfront uh, uh, better? Is earlier treatment better? And this is what we're going to try to uh, answer in, in showing you these uh, uh, studies. But the revolution really began in 2015, uh, and it started with charted. And docetaxel was approved previously based on the SWOG 9916 and TAX 327 in metastatic CRPC. There was a two-month survival advantage. We didn't get real excited about it at the time. But between 2004 and 2010, uh, uh, 2010 there were really no other uh, therapies approved with an overall survival uh, until we got to the Renaissance era. And then we have all of these other therapies, immunotherapies, the uh, Abbey, Enza, uh, radium, uh, another uh, chemotherapy, cabazitaxel, those have all been approved since uh, 2010 for metastatic CRPC based on overall survival. In charted, upfront docetaxel increased median survival by 13.6 months in the overall study, and this was confirmed simultaneously uh, with Stampede. So uh, this uh, intensification really, uh, really began in 2015 and this really led to us uh, thinking that hitting the prostate cancer hard and early is critical to long-term control. Now, when we broke down the charted study, we found that really only the high-volume patients were the ones that benefited. Even though in the overall study, uh, you can see an HR of uh, 0.73, uh, the low-volume patients really didn't uh, show a benefit, uh, and you had a hazard ratio of 1. And so when you looked at the high volume, that was about 17 months difference uh, between using uh, uh, docetaxel and ADT versus ADT alone. And this revolution continues with abiraterone. Abiraterone was first approved in the metastatic CRPC based on the uh, Cougar 301 and 302 trials in the post-chemotherapy and then pre-chemotherapy. And overall survival was uh, demonstrated. Uh, and as far as upfront abiraterone, uh, it uh, was uh, shown to show a survival advantage in the latitude study as well as a stampede trial. And it's not surprising uh, that in the final analysis, it held up and it remained important and compelling. Uh, and patients had about 16.8 months survival advantage. Uh, now, in uh, Latitude and Stampede in these trials, they did not allow docetaxel. Again, it, it had not been approved, uh, or we didn't see the data from charted when these trials were being developed. And Stampede, a uh, little different trial design, but it's almost a mirror image uh, of the results. The uh, overall survival was almost exactly the same in the Stampede trial looking at Abian and ADT. So this revolution is uh, validated by Arches. Arches looked at using enzalutamide and ADT. And enzalutamide was first approved uh, in the AFFIRM trial and in the PREVAIL trial. So it was post-docetaxel and pre-docetaxel. And there was survival advantage in both. And enzalutamide also 
delayed metastases in the Pros uh, PROSPER study in non-metastatic CRPC by 22 months, and later we saw a survival advantage uh, that was linked to that. So upfront ENZA and, and ADT improved overall survival by 34% in the ARCHES. Now there's one thing that was different about the ARCHES trial. The primary endpoint was RPFS. OS was a secondary endpoint. It was approved based on the RPFS. Now, they did not have mature uh, survival data at the time, and that's why I'm mentioning Enzymet. Enzymet read out at around the same time as Arches, but their primary endpoint was overall survival, and it was demonstrated in that trial. Uh, now, uh, again, the Arches uh, and Enzymet trials, they allowed uh, docetaxel, uh, but they didn't have enough patients to really power that to tell a difference between whether or not triplet therapy was better than doublet therapy. But enzalutamide, again, uh, it was approved uh, in MCRPC and then later in the PROSPER trial uh, showing, um, uh, again, we talked about uh, the uh, extension of the um, metastasis-free survival. Uh, and upfront enzalutamide improved overall survival in that Enzymet trial. Now the Enzymet trial was done uh, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, so it wasn't used for approval here. Uh, but there was only one site in the United States that had the Enzymet trial, and that was Dr. Morgan's site at the Dana-Farber. And it's no coincidence that Chris Sweeney, who was the principal investigator, uh, enrolled patients on that study. And this revolution is further validated with Titan, uh, and apalutamide was first approved in non-metastatic CRPC uh, in the Spartan trial, and there was a delay in metastasis by two years, and later we saw overall survival uh, uh, advantage with uh, apalutamide. Now looking at it in the Titan trial, the final analysis, overall survival, they, they had co-primary co endpoints of RPFS and overall survival, and it met both those endpoints. So based on all of this level one evidence, the AUA, ASTRO, SUO guidelines uh, give, uh, uh, offering Abby uh, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or, or docetaxel, a grade A or highest level uh, category uh, for recommendation. Now, the nice thing about the AUA guidelines are you see these little brief guideline statements and then you can read more about where they got there as far as uh, the evidence. But it's easy to navigate uh, but they gave it their highest level uh, evidence. And you can see the same thing in the NCCN guidelines. Now, notice here that they use castration naive. So we're seeing these terms uh, for the same disease state being uh, used differently. Uh, but they also give it category one, which is their highest recommendation of using uh, ADT plus ABI, APA, docetax, lorenzalutamide. And I think soon we're gonna see uh, darolutamide involved in that mix. So in selected patients with MHSPC with low volume disease, clinicians may offer primary radiotherapy to the prostate in combination with ADT. Low level evidence, it was based on a study in Sampede, where you can see when we look at the high and low burden that really it was the low burden patients uh, that benefited from adding radiotherapy. So you know, with all this evidence out there, why are we not intensifying ADT per the guidelines? 
We don't have an answer to that. In fact, there's a lot of smart people that have been trying to figure this out, and we put on programs like this to educate everybody. Uh, but you can see from the VA that 77% of patients up in, in, as, as, uh, you know, in 2018 got ADT only or a first generation, ADT plus a first generation uh, antiandrogen so that only 24% of patients received guideline recommended intensification. And we see that in Optum Health Insurance, and this was a study that uh, Scott Tagawa put together, but you can see that only 29% of patients uh, received intensity intensifying uh, therapy recommended, uh, and uh, the rest of these patients received ADT only or ADT and an antiandrogen. I was just going to make a comment that, so, and I wish I was trying to get the data to show at this meeting, we're working on a similar follow-up study on a different administrative data set, and even as late as 2021, it's just as bad. I mean, it's embarrassing how bad it is in the United, and, and I, you know, and, and, and I, as a urologist, it's even, it's worse among urologists than it is among medical oncologists. I think it's, it's amazing, and we're all scratching our heads about this. And this is uh, Dan George at your institution who uh, looked at this uh, community oncology groups. And again, 44% of patients are being treated with uh, adequate intensification and the rest are not. Now you're seeing a trend here where we're starting to see uh, patients getting ADT plus uh, novel hormone therapy. Uh, docetaxel has gone down. But if you look at that green line, ADT is going up. So, and I think, Judd, it's your point. I think if we get that data out now, we're probably going to see that we're in the wrong direction still. Uh, and then when we looked at SEER data, Medicare patients, 83.5% uh, are not being intensified according to uh, guidelines. And then off to the right there are the uh, guidelines I showed you from the NCCN. So can triplet therapy further improve outcomes in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? Well, there are a couple of studies out there. Piece one, this is the Prostate Consortium of Europe. Uh, it's a complex study. It's a little hard to follow, and they have this two-by-two two factorial design. But what they're looking at is de novo metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer patients in their forearms. So you have ADT with or without docetaxel, ADT with or without ABI, ADT with or without radiotherapy. Uh, but they originally started, they wanted to enroll, they got 1,173 patients in. But the standard of care up until 2015 was just ADT alone. Then after 2015, they made the standard of care ADT plus docetaxel. So, uh, and their primary endpoint was uh, uh, RPFS. But if you see the results here, and this was presented by Kareem Fazazi uh, at ESMO uh, in 2021, uh, you see that there is an improvement uh, with triplet therapy in overall survival. And if you kind of try to put this all under the context of recent data, adding ADP, AD, abiraterone to ADT plus docetaxel improves RPFS and OS. Uh, even when 84% of um, men that developed metastatic CRPC uh, from the control arm received androgen signaling uh, therapy. So toxicity was as expected for each, uh, uh, the abiraterone as well as the docetaxel, and there were, no, there were no new safety concerns. But if you put this all into context, and if you look at, uh, this is what uh, Dr. Fazazi um, presented, 
Uh, ADT alone, about three years. You do ADT plus docetaxel, you're getting close to four years. ADT plus abiraterone, about uh, you know, a little over four years. And then adding ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone, uh, we get out to about 60, uh, 61 months, so it's five years. So this is what they're able to show uh, in their study, and it added a, a year and a half uh, uh, after adding other intensification with doublets. Now, Aerosens, uh, this is not an ongoing trial anymore. It's, it's already uh, completed, and the results were read out uh, by Matt Smith at the uh, ASCO GU, and it was looking at ADT plus docetaxel plus or minus terilutamide. Uh, 1,300 patients were enrolled. The primary cutoff date was in October 2021, and it was a positive study. Uh, they, uh, the primary endpoint uh, was met as well as all these other secondary endpoints. And it was uh, in de novo and um, as, as far as uh, a recurrent disease. Uh, but they do know high and low, they haven't shared that with us yet. The, the difference between whether the high volume group or the low volume group benefited more or both, uh, but they tell us that they're gonna be reporting that at some point. But the results were that they had an improvement in overall survival uh, by using the triplet therapy. And it's kind of what they showed in the PEACE-1 trial too. Triplet therapy uh, was better than doublet therapy. But I think we need to define which patients are, gonna, are, gonna, uh, uh, are going to respond the best. And when they looked at uh, the combination in the de novo and recurrent groups, they still had overall survival advantage. It's kind of interesting that de novo didn't have as well of an advantage as the recurrent group. Uh, and I showed you that first slide that showed that de novo was probably a more aggressive biology. So now we're gonna shift gears. We're gonna talk a little bit about genetic counseling. Now, I'm not a genetic counselor, but I did stay at the Holiday Inn. So, <laughs> no, I actually, um, I finished the course, uh, City of Hope, uh, Cancer Genetics, uh, I, I just completed that. So I know a little bit, enough to be dangerous, uh, but I do, we do offer genetic counseling. We have a clinic now that we've set up so that we will take our high-risk localized disease and metas all metastatic patients and offer them germline testing. And so I do a little bit of counseling to these patients just to talk about the benefits and risk of doing the testing. We send it off to these companies, and if the insurance doesn't cover it, it's a pretty low cost. But I think germline testing is important because it informs not only the patient of some future treatment options and whether or not they're gonna have a more aggressive disease, but it informs the family. I recently had a patient who was BRCA2 positive, we went through the cascade testing, uh, and it was done, you know, online through one of these companies. I can't mention names, I guess, uh, but it ended up that he's had three other people in his family that were bracket two. A niece, uh, she was 34 years old. She just underwent a salpingoforectomy and thinking about bilateral mastectomy, and her two daughters, uh, who were uh, young, and so. Uh, it's interesting to see what you can unravel. Uh, you know, we think that probably about 10, 12% of patients with metastatic CRPC have uh, germline uh, mutations in the HRR mutations. I just wanted to make a comment. I don't know if anyone was in the session this afternoon. The, a group from Italy gave a very interesting uh, presentation this afternoon looking at how a high percentage of patients actually refuse this testing. And that 
uh, comparing northern Italy to central Italy to southern Italy, they found a big difference in uptake that patients were not willing to actually undergo this testing. So I think that well, we it's, may it, face this problem. And it, I, I don't know if there's any similar data in the United States, but I would bet you in my practice, quite a few patients, lower socioeconomic patients, would probably refuse. There are a number of patients that refuse. And, um, you know, I had one where this guy was in the upper socioeconomic. He was BRCA positive. We put him in a trial. But I talked to him about having his family tested. He says, no, I don't want them to know. Now, that was kind of unusual. But he says, I've got a granddaughter who, if she has it, she's not going to be able to get married. Uh, so, you know, you have all these different fears. Uh, we're involved with uh, uh, Dr. Um, uh, uh, Guri. Uh, she has a study called Progress at, at the Kimmel Cancer Center, and it's a registry. And so we hand that out to all our patients, but they do that online, and it talks to them about why or why not they decided to have testing done. So we're going to try to find some of these answers out. Uh, but I think it's an important thing to offer patients, uh, especially germline first. Uh, that's how we do it. Uh, but these are the NCCN guidelines. Uh, you have uh, AUA guidelines. But generally, this is just kind of a, an encapsulation of, you know, patients who have high risk, very high risk, regional or metastatic prostate cancer, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, family history of male or female breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. That's a, a, a signal. Uh, and you also can pick up other mutations when you do germline, like Lynch syndrome uh, 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 genes. Uh, so I think it's important. Uh, as far as somatic tumor testing, we're kind of holding off on that until, you know, some patients I offer it to them, some of them want to have it done right up front. Uh, but we really want to wait till we get something actionable. Once we get to that point, then we definitely get somatic testing. Uh, and not only do we look for HRR mutations with somatic testing, you also look for other things like microstatolite instability, DNA uh, mismatch repair, uh, as well as tumor mutational burden. Because those patients, there's an agnostic indication for pembrolizumab in those patients, patients in any solid uh, tumor. So don't forget about bone health. You know, every time we start somebody on uh, ADT, we talk to them about vitamin D and calcium, exercise, smoke cessation if they're smoking. We get a baseline DEXA and FRAX. And if they need antiresorptors, we'll start them on low-dose denosumab or low-dose oledronic acid. Usually it takes a little time, but I have some older patients who walk in the door with osteoporosis. Now, we don't have too much data on whether or not to use the high-dose uh, denosumab or zoledronic acid in patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, but this was uh, by Matt Smith from the CALGB group, and this was published in 2014, and they looked at whether or not patients would benefit that had metastatic hormone-sensitive disease as far as skeletal-related events, uh, overall survival, uh, and, um, uh, and so they looked at these uh, parameters, and there was no difference. So there really is no benefit that we can tell so far to starting patients on uh, that have metastatic CSPC, starting them on high-dose antiresorbers up front like we do with metastatic CRPC. So what's on the horizon for metastatic HSPC? These are uh, some studies that are, we're doing in our uh, clinic, and I'm sure there are others. 
Um, and maybe a lot of you are doing these studies, but this is Capitello, uh, and it's looking at de novo metastatic HSPC with P10 loss. And uh, it's, uh, it's looking at uh, capivacertib plus ADT and Abbey versus placebo plus ADT and Abbey. RPFS is the primary endpoint, overall survival is the secondary endpoint, but they think that they're going to have to screen 5,500 men in order to get 1,000 that have P10 deficiency. And this is an a, uh, cap, uh, cap dips and AKT uh, inhibitor. Uh, another study, Talipro 3, uh, kind of a similar design, and these are patients that uh, have CSPC, and they have to be positive with bone scan and uh, CT scan, conventional imaging. Uh, that's the other studies as well. Uh, they can have had docetaxel, the Capitello study, they couldn't. Uh, and uh, what it's broken down to is uh, ADT plus enzalutamide plus or minus talazoparib, a PARP inhibitor. Uh, and you can see the primary endpoints are kind of similar to what they use in Capitello. And there's another study, Amplitude. Uh, and, and in the uh, Talipro, they have to be HRR positive to get into the study. They did, we did a study in Talipro 2 where they looked at all comers and they decided that they had to be HRR positive to get a benefit. And they just had an amendment on Talipro 3 saying that patients with ATM are not going to be included. Uh, so they're breaking it down uh, to different HRR mutations. But Amplitude uh, looks at uh, similar patient population. And uh, they have to be HRR positive, and you can see all the genes that they're looking at down there on that lower line. Uh, but it's one-to-one, niraparib uh, plus Abby and ADT, or placebo plus abiraterone um, and ADT. And again, you see similar kinds of uh, endpoints and some stratification factors. So uh, there are ongoing clinical trials. Uh, the Aranote is going on outside of the US, and that may answer the question of does docetaxel really give you much more benefit over ADT plus teralutamide? So we're gonna see those, those results uh, probably in a few years. There's Keynote 991, which is ADT plus enzalutamide and, uh, plus or minus pembrolizumab. So these are the future directions. I just showed you all the studies that have uh, pretty much been completed in an MHSPC. Uh, these are the ones that are in progress. We've had a couple of studies in active surveillance, which uh, we're waiting for some readouts, uh, as well as high-risk localized advanced disease, enzorads using uh, enzalutamide plus, uh, with uh, radiation. Uh, Stampede's looking at an ABI. Uh, Atlas is looking at uh, apalutamide and uh, with the radiation proteus is a surgical study where they get six months of ADT plus or minus apalutamide for high risk patients and then the same regimen six months after their uh, prostatectomy and that's in progress. And then Embark, which is still in progress is a biochemical recurrence study looking at enzalutamide monotherapy. Uh, versus uh, ADT uh, or ADT plus enzalutamide. So this is what um, uh, we, we're going to conclude with. ADT monotherapy is no longer the standard of care. Treatment intensification strategies are, stat are stratified by higher low volume. Docetaxel is really high volume. You can see Abby, Apa, and Enza, higher low volume. And pretty soon you're going to see uh, darolutamide added. Uh, they've gone through an Excel, a, a uh, expedited um, approval 
Uh, so they're not approved yet, but on May 3rd, the FDA announced that they're going to put them on the fast track to, got, try, to determine whether they get approval. Uh, triplet therapy, which includes ADT, docetaxel, plus or minus uh, DARA or ABI, uh, demonstrated uh, overall survival advantage and should be considered. Uh, and we can talk about that, which patients should we consider that in. And triplet therapy with ADT and ABA or ENZA, ABI or ENZA with PARP inhibitors, AKT inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, they may be, be beneficial, but further efficacy and safety trials are needed or, and are underway. Consider radiation therapy to prostate, um, uh, to the prostate in low volume disease. And germline genetic testing is recommended for all patients with metastatic and high risk localized prostate cancer. So we can go back to our cases. Do we have time to go through these now, John? Okay. So this was case number one. Uh, just to review, this is a 65-year-old male with a history of Gleason 6, 7, and 9. PSA was 6.3 uh, when he presented. CT and bone scan negative. He goes through a radical prostatectomy. His post-op PSA was not non-detectable, and he gets six months of ADT and uh, external beam radiation. PSA becomes non-detectable. Four years later, PSA is going up. CT and bone scan were negative. A flucyclovine PET CT uh, demonstrated uh, lymph nodes that were uh, treated with SBRT. Uh, he had continuing, uh, continuing rise in his PSA. Uh, his uh, uh, CT and PET scan and bone scan in at the end of 2021 uh, just demonstrated some improvement of those uh, retroperitoneal nodes, and his bone scan was negative. PSA goes up to 13.8 uh, in uh, early 2022. We got a, a uh, uh, we did CT and PET scan conventional again, and we did see uh, four bone lesions uh, and the CT the uh, retroperitoneal, retroperitoneal nodes uh, have been increasing in size. Uh, germline testing was negative. Uh, patient did not want to undergo uh, any uh, somatic testing, so. Uh, we didn't check him for the uh, Capitello study. Uh, now, we can also do liquid testing uh, if patients don't want to have tissue testing. Um, there is a high concordance rate. It's not quite like tissue, uh, but I think it's about an 85% concordance rate using liquid or blood-based uh, somatic testing. So we're going to see what people would do at this point. He's got high-volume disease. Uh, and would you do, and based on what I just showed you, would you uh, do ADT alone, anybody? I don't think there was anybody that, that would do that. ADT plus NHT. Okay, we've moved a few, moved the needle a little bit. ADT plus six cycles of docetaxel. Okay, we have somebody out there. How about ADT plus NHT and six cycles of docetaxel? All right. So it's like we moved the needle a little bit. The, uh, the, only, the only thing that some people might say, and I, even though you didn't present that, I don't think, is that when you made the comment that, he, that de novo metastatic disease is worse than the term met, uh, metachronous. metachronous. So this guy had metachronous, so his prognosis should be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So therefore, some might make an argument for ADT plus NHT. Or six cycles of docetaxel. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just no, I, and, and I think what we need to do is try to define who are the high-risk patients that need triplet therapy. Alicia, I know you're trying to yeah. say something. Yeah, thank you, my mom. 
my microphone doesn't work, but maybe somebody can help us with that over the course of the next little bit. Um, anyway, just to comment on, thanks so much. So just to comment on that exact point, I, I really appreciate you raising that. So the PEACE-1 trial and the majority of the patients in Aracens had de novo metastatic and high volume disease. So it's really an interesting question. I think that it's a bit of a, more of a slam dunk to say de novo metastatic high volume disease, the triplet in chemo fit patients is absolutely what I would say I would offer a patient as a, as a medical oncologist. Um, again, chemo fit patient is really important to start off with because there will, there will be patients, of course, who are not going to be chemo fit. But that triplet combination seems to be such a, if, they, if they're chemo fit again, um, not a, a substantial increase in morbidity in terms of adding that AR targeted agent onto, onto the docetaxel if that is something that you're planning to do anyway. But in the recurrent setting and in the low volume setting, there's, there's more of a question of whether the triplet is really necessary and, um, and whether it's actually going to be beneficial. In low volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease, we based on the charted trial, we don't necessarily always offer chemotherapy, or at least I don't, unless the patient is young and really pushing that that's of interest to that individual. Um, so the, this metachronous setting is still being worked out, and I think the data is to come, but that's a great point, and this is where shared decision-making and a multidisciplinary uh, clinic conversation, I think, can be really, really useful. Right, and the patient uh, has to be involved in that decision-making, too. Some of them don't want chemotherapy. I got to ask you one other question. For the urologist in the audience, and for Larry and I, um, how do you, is there an easy way for a urologist to determine chemo fit? Because, you know, I, get, I don't know when, I mean, I don't want to burden all my medical oncology colleagues. I can treat some of these patients myself, but I don't want to miss the opportunity for docetaxel and have them get, you know. Sure. So, uh, good, this is, thank you. Um, so I judge chemo fit, uh, which, which can be a gestalt, like you said. You know, medical oncologists, just, we, we just kind of have it when we, we know when we walk in the room for the most part. But what, what I do talk to patients about is whether they are up and moving around at least 50% of their day. That, I think, is a pretty easy nugget to kind of tuck away and think about. And I'll talk about chemo when people will say, yeah, you know, that's, okay, so I'm over-exaggerating over that just a little bit. But there are patients who need to have chemo and they say, yeah, I can do it, I can do it. Um, but then I ask that follow-up question, are you really up and moving around half of your day? Are you really pretty independent in most of your activities of daily living, taking care of yourself, dressing yourself, bathing yourself, feeding yourself, some of the instrumental ADLs like feeding yourself, checkbook and stuff. Maybe we, we don't necessarily need to use those to judge, but certainly the very basics and moving around 50% of your day, which is the ECOG performance status of tube, basically. So if they are not, it is very possible that chemotherapy will cause more, more harm than good and may shorten their life expectancy. So that 50% up and moving about during the day, I think, is really helpful. Those are some good points. Excellent. And, you know, I might also say ADT monotherapy is not totally out the door. There are some patients who are not fit. Uh, not only are they not chemo fit, but they're not fit to add on other therapies. I think it's a minority of patients that I've seen uh, that wouldn't tolerate an NHT. Uh, but you have to keep that in mind. Um, but those are some great points. And um, so let's go on to uh, our case number two. We have a 55-year-old uh, who has Gleason 9, PSA 55. 
CT and bone scan negative. Scheduled for an RRP, sees me in second opinion. We get a PSMA PET, and he's got diffuse nodal disease and one bone net. Uh, germline and somatic, he's BRCA2. He was P10 proficient. Uh, so we had a number of different choices. So anybody who treat, uh, again, this is a very robust 55-year-old, very active guy who wants to be very aggressive. So um, ADT alone. ADT plus NHT or six cycles of docetaxel. ADT plus NHT plus six cycles. Okay, how about an ADT and a PARP inhibitor? He's BRCA2. Well, a PARP inhibitor, unless you're doing a clinical trial like we're doing uh, with triplet therapies, is only approved uh, in metastatic CRPC after patients have had uh, an NHT uh, for Olaparib and then for Rucaparib, they have to have had an NHT plus uh, chemotherapy. So it doesn't, it's not in this setting. He could have been a patient in our clinical trial uh, where, because uh, he was BRCA2 positive, but he wanted to be very aggressive. Uh, and again, he couldn't get into the trial because it was based on advanced imaging. It wasn't on conventional imaging. So he wouldn't be a, uh, a candidate. Uh, for those trials. Uh, so uh, what he has elected to do uh, is ADT plus docetaxel, uh, and we did get the approval for darolutamide, even though it's not approved yet. Some of the insurance payers are looking at that, and we sent them a copy of the New England Journal, and they look at that and they say, okay. Uh, others, uh, you know, they're still stuck on ADT alone. Uh, but. Um, uh, there are other companies, uh, so this patient, it was approved. The, the patient that I just presented before, we offered him triple and he wants to do triple therapy, uh, but they denied uh, darolutamide, so we're in the process of trying to get uh, one of the other NHTs approved for him so we can give him triple therapy because he wants to be aggressive as well. This patient, Judd, in answer to your question, he's going to get consolidative treatment uh, and it's most likely gonna be radiation uh, possibly cryo, he's looking, mm -hmm. he's talking to Dave Crawford. And um, uh, we might, you could consider a prostatectomy as well. But this is a young guy who uh, we're gonna be very aggressive with. So I think that is the end of my presentation. Thank you very much and thanks for your participation. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to go through this very briefly. I have, I'm going to give a talk on, um, no, this is the, uh, oh, never, let me go through. I think this, they have your, uh, this is the wrong, this is Dr. Karsh's talk. So we need to go to the M0. While we're waiting for those slides to go up, how many people in the audience have actually seen or treated a patient with M0 CRPC in the last two months? A few, so um, that's very interesting because uh, th I think the key teaching point on this talk is, is that there's you know some people think that this disease state is going to go away and that it's um, uh, that it's maybe somewhat irrelevant. So, but nevertheless, I'm going to go through this. We have, with regard to this non-metastatic CRPC, we started talking about this in 2018. 
uh, when the first agent got approved. And now we have three non-steroidal oral antiandrogens that are FDA approved since February of 2018. So, and Dr. Karsh covered those drugs in the metastatic setting. Uh, here we're moving it forward one step to non-metastatic CRPC. These patients had traditionally been in urology practices, at least in the United States, as a urologist had given hormone therapy for biochemical recurrence, and these guys were in the practices. And so the biggest challenge we have faced since 2018 is identifying these patients in practices because they seem to sometimes get overlooked. Um, so, you know, even if, but now if, even if you don't manage CRPC, two of these three agents are now also approved for M1, as you heard about. So again, it's relevant for all urologists because we see metastatic disease. So um, the oral agents are safe. They all extend metastasis-free and now overall survival. Um, two years without metastasis is clinically meaningful. So again, it's, not, it's more of a problem with what, whether the disease state exists or not. The agents are very effective. So if you do identify one of these patients and you give one of these drugs, you can delay metastasis by two years and they all uh, show overall survival. Um, you could argue that two years without having to switch physicians is good for patients, or at least helpful to their quality of life. And again, for the majority of these men, the two years or more quality is, is quality of life, not just uh, life, because their quality of life stays pretty good. And the drugs are really straightforward with proper education. Um, what is it? It's uh, non-metastatic disease, but PSA is rising on continuous ADT with a castrate T and no METs on standard imaging. Remember, all these agents were approved prior to the era of PET scans. So these trials were done with standard bone scans and CAT scans. And the three FDA-approved drugs we already heard about, APA, ENZA, and daralutamide, all improved survival. They're, if you look at the literature, some people refer to these as third-generation non-steroidal oral antiandrogens. Some people say they're second-generation. But as we know, they're, they're, you know, their forefathers were flutamide bicalutamide and nilutamide, and uh, those did not improve survival, but these do. Uh, key side effects include falls, fractures, rare seizures, rash, chemical hypothyroidism, but none of the drugs, when the FDA approved them, require special monitoring. So you, you have to be aware of these things, but unlike some of the drugs in the past, you're not mandated to get liver function testing or you're not mandated to get thyroid testing. Um, I'm going to skip this for the sake of time. The key teaching point, this was a gentleman who did fit the criteria and had a rising PSA and eventually his PSA rose and he went on one of these agents. So he currently had a PSA of 2.8. He had a castrate serum testosterone. He underwent restaging with a bone scan in the CT, which was negative for metastasis. And so he fit the criteria for non-metastatic CRPC and went on one of the agents. Again, rising PSA in the setting of a castrate testosterone level and no tumors seen on traditional imaging of a bone scan and a CT. Now in the clinical trials, the doubling time had to be less than 10 months. So on that pretest question, the 12 months was incorrect. And maybe it was a little bit of a trick question, but it's or persnickety, but it asked they had to be less than 10 months to get on the trial. When the FDA approved these agents, they never put that in the label. So as a clinician, you don't have to prove that the patient has a doubling time less than 10 months to use these agents. The three trials were Spartan with apalutamide, Prosper with enzalutamide, and Aramis with darolutamide. 
Um, again, the first one out of the gate was alpalutamide in February of 2018. In fact, on Valentine's Day of 2018, then July of 18 was Enza, and then in July of 19 was Dara. And um, these were just the alpalutamide first author was Matt Smith. Um, Enzalutamide first author was Maha Hussein and uh, Daralutamide was uh, Karim Fazazi. So these were all published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, this is a busy slide. What's the key teaching point? The trials were essentially identical, identical as far as their design. Two to one randomization, similar numbers of patients, similar stratification, all had to have a doubling time less than 10 months, all had to have a PSA greater than two. And so the only slight difference is you know, some of them excluded uh, patients with a seizure disorder. Some of them had some slight differences in cardiovascular toxicity, allowing those patients on board. Um, and they all showed a benefit in this metastasis-free survival, give or take, of about two years. And they all showed an overall survival benefit. So um, they're all effective drugs in this class. They all have their unique side effects uh, or issues. Now, um, they all, enzalutamide and apalutamide do cross the blood-brain barrier, so potentially a little more fatigue, a little more um, uh, slight higher risk of seizure. Enza has a little bit higher rate of seizures than apa. Darolutamide does not cross the blood-brain barrier to uh, any significant degree, so there's some differences there. Um, that, but that's, these are shown on the slide, and the one side effect of apalutamide is the rash that occurs in mild rash in up to 20 to 25% of patients, but any sort of rash that would be ga a game changer that would require you to stop the drug is pretty darn low in the order of maybe five to 6%. Most of the time it, it, it's self-limited. Again, ASCO update 2020, they showed survival benefit. And so in, on all three, I mean, so again, we, they, they've mirrored each other. Um, and then what's though the key discussion in 2022? So now we have PET scan. So the question is, is that how do you handle a PET scan finding in the setting of wanting to use these agents? And so, um, and also how do you decide between apalutamide, enzalutamide, darolutamide? They're all, you know, great drugs, wonderful that we have in our toolboxes, but they're very similar. Um, and, and so we have to make those decisions. Um, what I'd like to do is kind of just uh, open it up to uh, Dr. Karsh and Dr. Morgans just to see, um, you know, how you manage a patient like this. Specifically now, with Larry, if you have a PET scan, do you just kind of uh, ignore it in the set? If the guy has a negative bone scan or a CT, um, how do you how do you how do you handle it? Well, I showed you that case where we acted on a PET CT uh, PSMA. So I, you know, I tend to think that if these patients have positive scans and we're getting more and more of them now, uh, that I'm going to make treatment decisions based on those uh, scans. So basically, you would use these agents, but it would definitely be an intensification with uh, either a triplet therapy or with. Uh, SBRT or something. Correct. Yeah, Dr. Morgan? Yeah, thank you. I think this is such a clinically important question because we are increasingly using these scans, whether we're in the hormone-sensitive biochemical re recurrent state or when whether we're in the M0 CRPC state as we are in here. 
I would encourage all of us, because we're using these scans, that we don't back off of the systemic treatment intensification that has clear survival benefit. So the three drugs that Dr. Moll just showed us, when we add those to ADT, we not only delay metastasis for two years, we also improve overall survival, even though the majority of patients in the control arms of all of these trials got the drug eventually. So it's delay early versus delayed intensification. The earlier intensification, we're prolonging survival. So I use the PSMA PET scans in this setting to add on things like SBRT, but I don't use it to say, oh, I'm not going to intensify my therapy if I have a negative PSMA PET scan. So I just really want to emphasize that. Very good point. And, and, and the other thing about this, if you're dealing with an M0 CRPC that's going to have a negative bone scan and a CT, but as a positive PET scan, in all likelihood, that's going to be minimal, that's going to be low volume. I can't think of a scenario where you'd have a negative bone scan and a negative CT where you would call the PET. So in other words, I guess in this setting, it would be intensification, but you probably wouldn't be adding docetaxel at this point, correct? I would not. I actually, um, so docetaxel in my practice is for patients with high volume hormone sensitive disease or MCRPC defined by conventional imaging because that's how the phase three trials that led to their, the approval um, actually were designed. So I use PSMA PET to help me understand if I might be able to do SBRT to oligometastatic disease or in this case, you know, very low volume metastatic disease. But I wouldn't use it, to, especially in the hormone sensitive setting, really to define high volume disease. And one other caveat a point, sort of building on what you mentioned, 98% of patients in a nice study done by Fendler and colleagues who had M0 CRPC, as was defined in the Spartan trial, which again, as we heard, basically they're all defined the same way. Um, actually, 98% of them had some identifiable PSMA PET AVID lesion. So most of the patients that fall into this category are going to have something on their PSMA PET. We just, I think, need to remember that they also could be helped by intensifying their systemic therapy. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. That's the, oh. that's the, yeah. right here. <laughs> That was planned. That's good. No, that's, that's, that's all good. So, so again, the key teaching point, as Dr. Morgan said, is that if you do want to, especially I would think the PSMA arguably is a little bit more sensitive, although let me just go back one slide. I wanted to get that one on when she said that. So here's what we, I mean, here are all the stuff that's coming down the pike. I mean, two new FDA approvals, PSMA PET Gallium 68 or F18, we had the choline PET 11 or F18 approved at Mayo Clinic, uh, fluciclovine, which, uh, which has been approved, uh, FDG PET. So there's a lot, and, and uh, the bone only sodium fluoride F18 has kind of fallen out. We're not really using that anymore, to my knowledge. But these are just some of the, some of the things that, and they're going to be more. So, um, but this is, the, this, this is the, probably the money slide of this particular talk that's new in 2008. 22 compared to when we gave this in 2018, that this disease state, it's still important to learn about it, but it's changed because of imaging. So PET scanning, now here's what I would say though, PET scanning is not required before the use of these three oral agents. If you don't have access to a PET scan where you're practicing, uh, certainly doesn't preclude you. I mean. As Dr. Morgan said, these three agents are all adding early use or adding survival. They're adding metastasis-free survival. 
the PET findings would not preclude the use of these agents as long as the traditional imaging is negative. Uh, however, for healthy men with a longer life expectancy, it's certainly reasonable to combine these agents with SBRT, although, I'm, and I'm not 100% I'm even correct on this. I, I don't believe there's any level one evidence at this point, although, is that? You're right. Okay, you're I didn't think there's any level one evidence. We're doing it, um, and we believe we're benefiting patients, but we we're not certain that the intensification with SBRT will lead to an improved survival. The, the systemic therapy does. So um, I just wanted to go through that quickly. Um, I had the easiest, the hardest and the easiest job because the stuff isn't, that part was not very new, but the PET scanning was fairly new. So we're gonna move right on uh, and I'm gonna, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Morgans who's gonna cover metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. and thank you guys for sticking around. Lots, lots of ground has been covered. Um, so we'll go into metastatic CRPC. Uh, and here's an outline of what we're going to discuss. So first, general principles, just to remind us as a multidisciplinary team, kind of the, the backbone of how we consider MCRPC and some of the newer advents of germline uh, and somatic genetic testing. Then I'll talk about specific treatments, so PARP inhibitors and focus on, on those and some updates in that area. Moving on to pembrolizumab and then lutetium, one of our newest approvals. We'll talk about supportive care, particularly bone health, which as we heard earlier from Dr. Karsh is different than it is in the hormone sensitive setting where we're really focusing on fragility fractures, osteoporotic related fractures in that setting. Here we're talking about skeletal related events and then we'll end. So the general principles of MCRPC are probably things that you have heard and thought about before, but i just like to remind us of these basic tenets. This is the NCCN guideline, uh, the most updated version uh, prior to slide uh, entry for, for review by the AUA. So it may have changed even since I submitted this. But as you can see here, it is very complicated but it is also very much devoted to understanding what a patient's received before as we're trying to figure out what a patient should receive now. And that's because particularly when we're talking about androgen receptor targeted agents, the resistance methods of the cancer cells are actually very similar. Resistance to abiraterone often confers resistance to enzalutamide, for example. So we have to think about what a patient's received before when we're trying to think about where a patient should go next. This is a schematic of how I think about treatments for MCRPC because for me the, the colors and the organization is a little bit easier to understand. On the left we can see some of the agents that we can use in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting and then each line that we move through the MCRPC setting I try to change colors. Um, and so that I think helps me think through, you know, how do I want to work on this? And new additions to this schematic include the PARP inhibitors, Olaparib and Rucaparib, as well as Pembrolizumab. And these are for specific uh, populations. And I will be adding Lutetium on here soon enough. Actually, I did add it, so good for me. But it is on there on the radio pharmaceuticals on green. So thinking about these general principles, clinical factors are still absolutely key. So again, what were the prior therapies that these patients have received? 
which options are actually available for my patients in my practice location. And this is going to be increasingly important as we're thinking about integrating letitium into our practices because this re requires multidisciplinary care, both for patient selection using PSMA PET scans and then, of course, getting patients to either nuclear medicine or radiation oncology where they can get the treatment. Who's going to follow that patient in the toxicities that may occur during therapy? What kind of supportive care do we need to provide? Who's going to provide that? So these are going to be really important. And, and what's available in your location is going to be critical in choosing this treatment and, and others. Are there visceral metastases? Of course, important for treatment with radium versus bone-only metastases. Is the patient a candidate for chemotherapy? So can I include that on my list of options? Is the patient developing small cell differentiation and most importantly, uh, or, or neuroendocrine differentiation? And small cell differentiation is the most important there because that is going to actually lead us to want to use certain chemotherapy combinations that we would not normally use in a prostate adenocarcinoma. Are there targetable DNA repair defect mutations or MSI high status for some of our targeted therapies? And are there clinical trial options? Always, always a critical point. So just to hammer home one of the points about novel mechanisms of resistance, I really like this study. It's a number of years old, but it was a study looking at biopsies uh, in patients who had multiple areas of metastatic disease and then looking at the genetics of the different sites of metastatic disease to look for mechanisms of resistance and how they may have traveled actually between the primary prostate and metastatic sites or between different metastatic sites and how they moved around and were actually shared between these metastatic sites. It's actually, I think, a reminder of how smart these little cells are and how they can transfer these mechanisms of resistance all around the body. So it's very scary, but we have to be smart about it, obviously. Changing mechanism of action to deal with this concept, I think, is really, really important. So thinking about this other general principle, sequencing androgen receptor uh, targeted agents is usually minimally effective. And here's some data to suggest that. There are multiple studies, not just the ones listed in this table, that demonstrate that there's a very low PSA response as well as a very low median PFS benefit and OS benefit when we're sequencing AR targeted agent versus uh, after AR targeted agent. Here, I think, is one of the more important uh, studies that led to, uh, to another piece of data that suggested this. This is the CARD trial, which was looking at a more advanced metastatic CRPC setting for third-line treatment. Patients had had progression of disease with, after docetaxel as well as NAR-targeted agent, and they were randomized to treatment with cabazitaxel versus the alternate AR-targeted agent. We can see in the control arm of this, where they had that alternate AR-targeted agent, that there's an extremely short median PFS of about 2.7 months for that second AR-targeted agent. This is a randomized trial. These patients didn't necessarily go AR-targeted agent to AR-targeted agent. Some of them were sandwiched around docetaxel, so AR, doci, and then the second AR. Um, it didn't make a difference. There was a very minimal to no PFS benefit to that second AR-targeted agent. Profound similarly showed this concept. So again, this is a DNA repair defect selected group of patients with MCRPC who had been exposed to an AR-targeted agent, previously had progression of disease, as well as uh, docetaxel chemotherapy in many situations. They were randomized to treatment with olaparib versus that alternate AR-targeted agent. The median PFS here on the control arm was three and a half months, basically the time to the first scan. 
So this, this AR targeted agent back to back or even sandwiched around docetaxel does not work for the majority of patients. So another general principle is that genetic testing should be offered to patients. And I think we've, we've heard this at uh, other venues during this meeting so far. This is uh, something that is endorsed by the AUA um, and absolutely covers patients with MCRPC, as well as any metastatic patient. And this is the NCCN guideline that endorses the same thing. Any patient with metastatic disease should undergo germline testing. And if that hasn't happened by the time the patient has developed MCRPC, germline testing should be performed. About half of the alterations that we can act on in the DNA repair defect pathway are identified in germline, the germline setting. About half are identified in the somatic testing that we should also be doing. So in the MCRPC setting, germline and somatic testing should be performed. And here we can see some of the genes that should be included in the somatic testing as we're doing that. Um, it's really nice that they've actually given us a list because there are multiple panels that are out there for somatic testing as well as for germline testing. We just need to make sure that the genes that might drive our therapeutic decisions are included in our panel. So they're listed here, BRCA1, BRCA2, AUTM, PALB2, and others. So as we're choosing our germline in our somatic tests, just make sure that the test has the genes that you're, you're interested in understanding. And of course, this is because there have been multiple studies to show the prevalence in MCRPC of the DNA repair defect pathway alterations that can be targeted with things like Olaparib. 23% approximately of patients with MCRPC will have these DNA repair defect alterations. And as the disease progresses, progresses this actually the frequency increases because we're selecting for these more aggressive clones. We also know that, as I said earlier, any patient with localized metastatic, or sorry, with metastatic hormone sensitive disease and beyond should undergo germline testing, and that's because in the metastatic setting, including hormone sensitive and castration resistant, the prevalence is approximately 11.8%. So, yes. So thinking about some recent therapeutic advantages or advances, um, do you think in the interest of time, Judge, should we move through this? Should we? We have time? Okay. All right, great. So Mr. GB is a 68-year-old gentleman with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and prostate cancer diagnosed about four years ago. He had localized disease diagnosed initially with a PSA of 6.9 and a Gleason 4 plus 4 disease, uh, PT3B and 0M0. He underwent that uh, prostatectomy uh, and adjuvant radiation because of his uh, PT3B disease. Family history was notable because his mother died of ovarian cancer at 38 years old. Uh, he had a rising PSA and a CT chest with new lung metastases and a bone scan with numerous metastatic sites in the pelvis and vertebral bodies shortly thereafter. He was started on ADT and docetaxel for metastatic hormone sensitive disease. He then developed metastatic CRPC when his PSA rose to 15. He had a CT with new bone metastases, enlarging pelvic lymph nodes, and the largest was 3.4 centimeters. What are the next appropriate next steps in the management of this patient? He has been treated with docetaxel already for metastatic hormone sensitive disease. Um, should we get a PSMA PET to evaluate for treatment with lutetium? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, a couple, thank you. Uh, bone lesion biopsy to send for next generation sequencing and chemotherapy sensitivity assays, anybody? Good, because I'm not aware of any chemotherapy sensitivity assays that are actually going to be helpful, so good. It would be amazing if we had them. <laughs> so 
Uh, yeah, so there are, there are some, so just a question about you know, TP53 mutations, do they help when we're choosing chemotherapy? So sometimes we think about P10, RB, and, and uh, P53. If we have two out of three of those, that patient may be more, um, more susceptible to a, a carbocabazotaxel combination chemotherapy, at least that's what I think of. Um, and sometimes some of these alterations suggest a more aggressive cancer that may be more chemoreceptive um, or responsive. So good, very good point. Moving on to number three here, germline and somatic genetic testing for DNA repair defect mutations and MSI high status should be performed. Anybody? A couple smattering. Okay, very nice, good. Initiate denosumab, 60 milligrams uh, sub-Q, Q6 to prevent fragility fractures. Anybody? All right, so the right answer here is germline and somatic genetic testing. The reason the last one's wrong is because the dose is incorrect for MCRPC, and we're not trying to prevent fragility fractures here. We're trying to prevent skeletal-related events. So good work. Mr. GB underwent germline and somatic mutation testing because you decided to get it. Um, he was diagnosed with a VUS and ATM in tissue testing and in germline testing. Uh, he started treatment with abiraterone, uh, 1,000 milligrams daily, and prednisone, 5-BID, and denosumab, 120 sub-Q monthly. That's the MCRPC dose. Um, his PSA, though, eventually rose to 45. He developed back pain in areas of metastatic disease, and a CT showed progression of bone metastases and enlarging lung metastases. Now, what are the next most appropriate steps? PSA. Yes. Yes, so to confirm, the ATM variant of uncertain significance was not pathogenic. It was reported as a VUS. So the more of this germline testing that you do, the more you will see these VUSs. If you're very curious, you can actually type them into some of the um, NCI-supported databases where you can actually look up if someone has defined them as being pathogenic or not. But usually, 95% of the time or more, they're truly going to be benign. Even if you look them up, you may find that they're benign. They're just not updated in the particular testing platform where they're still reporting them as a VUS. But it is very uncommon that a VUS is considered pathogenic. Although something to watch out for, and the companies often will report to you, if they make a change from a VUS to a pathogenic, they'll often report it to whoever has ordered the test so that you can report that to the patient. That's what we're concerned about. Are they going to really report that to us? Do we have to keep following up for that patient? And, you know, that's, that's the They say the they're going to report it. And my yes. genetic counselors have told me that they report it, so I hope they report it because that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Giving the report to the patient also helps to promote advocacy for that individual and empower uh, the, that patient to also continue to look over time. 20 years down the road, maybe they'll find something, uh, but giving the report to the patient and potentially the family can be helpful. So for this patient who's progressed on docetaxel and abiraterone, has a VUS, but nothing um, that's clearly identified as a pathogenic DNA repair defect alteration, what is the most appropriate next step for this patient? Uh, who thinks PSMA PET to evaluate for treatment with lutetium? A, a smattering. Thank you. Initiate treatment with Olaparib for the ATM VUS mutation identified on germline and somatic testing. Good. We kind of gave you the answer on that one, so good. Uh, initiate treatment with pembrolizumab for uh, ATM VUS mutation identified on germline and somatic testing. Yeah. We already talked about VUSs, um, but treatment with radium-223 for symptomatic bone metastases. Okay, so the answer is answer number one or mm -hmm. dot one, um, and the reason it's not radium is because this patient does have soft tissue disease, so there are some nodes involved, uh, and pembrolizumab does not go after ATM, or that's not a pair. 
All right, so let's talk about PARP inhibitors. Uh, Olaparib was tested in the phase three profound trial, uh, and this included patients who had metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who identified as having one of a number of DNA repair defect alterations. All patients had had progression on an AR-targeted agent, most on docetaxel and some on docetaxel, cabazitaxel, and both AR-targeted agents, so some were quite heavily pretreated. They were divided into two cohorts, with cohort A having the primary endpoints sort of relying on that cohort, which is the cohort of BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM patients. Cohort B was a bit more of a grab bag of the less common DNA repair defect alterations. All patients were randomized two to one to receive uh, Olaparib versus the alternate AR targeted agent. Uh, and I think that we already saw how the alternate AR targeted agent did when I showed you the control arm previously. The primary outcome was progression-free survival in cohort A. So here is the overall cohort uh, profound trial PFS, where you can see that Olaparib was clearly associated with an improvement in PS, PFS as opposed to the alternate AR targeted agent. And here we can see that overall survival was also improved in cohort A, BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM alterations in patients who received Olaparib versus that alternate AR targeted agent. This did not meet statistical significance in the overall population, which included those other uh, alterations. Rucaparib is also approved for the treatment of MCRPC. This was tested in the phase two Triton II trial. This included patients, again, with DNA repair defect alterations, uh, a very similar group as to those included in the profound trial. All patients had had progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent and on docetaxel. All had had to be exposed to docetaxel, and they had progression of MCRPC. They were followed for a primary endpoint of response rate. On the left, we can see a really nice waterfall plot demonstrating the, the resist response to treatment with rucaparib, so a very um, nice response in terms of decrease of lesion size, and on the right, we have PSA responses as well. And these are just for patients treated on this trial with BRCA1 and BRCA2. So these trials led to the FDA approvals, which include rucaparib, which is approved for patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 alterations who have had progression of disease after an AR-targeted agent and docetaxel in the MCRPC setting. Olaparib is approved for patients who had any of the alterations included in the profound trial after progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent. They do not have to have prior exposure to docetaxel. So these are slightly different approvals, but both approved in the MCRPC setting. So just to briefly go through pembrolizumab. Can, can, can I just ask a practical? Yeah, so how do you make, from a practical standpoint, how do you make a determination between when you prescribe one or the other? So I use disease state, so whether the patient's been exposed to docetaxel or not. And in many cases, patients are asking for this before docetaxel. And so I'm often using Olaparib because of the disease setting. It also has a broader array right. of alterations. Uh, but I think either is a completely reasonable option. And some, some providers may have a lot more experience with Rucaparib, so may feel more comfortable using that agent. You know, it kind of comes down to whether you do the higher low volume um, definition when you're talking about triplet therapies. Yes. Uh, I don't know that I have seen a lot of, uh, you know, with the in the profound trial, everything else other than BRCA1, 2, and even they had ATM. I'm not sure that I'm getting some real good results. I think when they have BRCA1 and 2, I see that, that they respond the best. I mean, is, yes. is that what you see in your practice? 
So I think uh, Dr. Karsh is bringing up such a good point that these alterations are not all created equal and they don't all respond equivalently to these PARP inhibitors. And I think there's a lot of work to still be done. As we heard earlier, ATM is actually now population not included in Triton 3. Um, and this is because we may not be seeing such so pronounced responses in that setting. Uh, BRCA2 patients are both the most commonly seen in prostate cancer, but also probably the most responsive to these drugs. And another group that's not always considered but seems to be relatively well responding is PALB2. So also keep that one in mind. But uh, I think we are really still figuring this out. Just because a drug is, is approved for all of these alterations, like Olaparib, does not mean you necessarily will see blockbuster responses on a lot of those alterations. Do you see differences in, practical differences in toxicity between the two drugs? Does that ever make a determination on your decision? I have, I have not. They seem to be, um, the side effect profiles really seem quite consistent with the class effects of having some cytopenias, um, maybe some fatigue, a little GI upset with any oral agent, but the, I have not seen that there have been pronounced differences. Although, Dr. Karsh, do you have a similar or different experience? Well, you know, a lot of my patients, uh, they get to that point, um, have not seen docetaxel at that point, and so it kind of makes it more difficult to use recaparin. Uh, but if they have, then, you know, you could consider it, but, um, you know, that's the, the only, that's the difference yeah. between those two. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you for that. Great conversation. So moving on to pembrolizumab, which has been approved, as we also heard earlier, for any patient who has MSI high status, for patients who have TMB, tumor mutational burden, greater than 10, and patients who have MSH and L MLH mutations affiliated with Lynch syndrome, MSH2 and MSH6 being the most common in prostate cancer. This is a really interesting approval that's sort of pan tumor type in solid tumor and really based on the genetic testing. So we have to get the genetic tests to understand if we can use it. So in terms of MSI high uh, metastatic CRPC, it is, uh, it is we, we do see these patients in our practice, but they are few and far between. It's approximately two to 3% of the CRPC population. Uh, but if we don't look, we won't find them. For those patients who do have MSI high status, it can be incredibly effective to treat them with pembrolizumab in the MCRPC setting. And these CTs just demonstrate some really actually quite beautiful responses to treatment with pembrolizumab. Letitian PSMA 617 is also a new approval. This is a very recent approval. And this is based on the vision study, which was a phase three study of lutetium PSMA 617. So this included patients who had had previous treatment and progression of disease on an AR targeted agent, as well as docetaxel chemotherapy. All patients had MCRPC. They were randomized two to one to treatment with lutetium plus the best supportive treatment uh, or supportive option, which could have been an AR targeted agent in combination with lutetium or a prednisone or another steroid or even a pain medication versus the best supportive or standard of care option alone and patients were followed for a PFS and OS combined endpoint. So here we see the overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival alternate primary endpoints with OS on the left and radiographic progression-free survival on the right. We did see about a four and a half month improvement in overall survival for the treatment of this very heavily pretreated MCRPC population with lutetium versus the best standard of care option. And here we can see that the PFS is even a little bit longer. 
The safety data suggests that the primary concerns here are going to be some fatigue as well as cytopenias. So it is important to keep an eye on the CBC and potentially support patients with transfusions if that does become necessary. But generally, this uh, treatment has been relatively well tolerated. Dry mouth is another um, very specific side effect for some of these radiopharmaceuticals that are targeting PSMA mm -hmm. that we should all be aware of. And finally, just to go through supportive care very briefly. Um, so supportive care, as I said, in the MCRPC setting is to prevent skeletal-related events. It is under-recognized and under-appreciated. This was identified as being a pretty interesting and, and clear problem. In the ERA-223 trial in which patients with MCRPC were treated with uh, abiraterone plus radium versus abiraterone alone and followed for a primary endpoint of skeletal, symptomatic skeletal events because we thought that the combination of abiraterone and radium might delay the time to symptomatic skeletal event. What we saw, however, is that those patients in the combination arm had a su substantially increased risk of fracture. 40% of the excess fractures in that arm occurred in the first six months. Um, and actually, we saw a pretty su substantial fracture rate in the abiraterone alone arm. So these are all MCRPC patients. They all qualified for treatment with monthly denosumabrazolidronic acid. We clearly were not giving it to them, though. And when this was identified, a very similarly designed trial, the PEACE-3 trial that was proceeding in patients with MCRPC who were randomized to treatment with enzalutamide versus enzalutamide plus radium, became very aware and made a, a quick call to try to prevent this from happening in their study as well. What they did was it actually send out a safety letter to tell everyone, get your patients on a bone protective agent per standard of care, please, now. And before the exposure to the bone protective agent and that safety letter on the right, you can see a pretty substantial level of fracture in the combination enzalutamide and radium arm, and even a pretty significant level of fracture in enzalutamide alone arm. But after exposure to the bone protective agent, sort of the left side of this graph, those rates went to zero. So using bone protective agents is standard of care, has been for a long time, and we need to remember to do it in metastatic CRPC. You know, it is amazing that in all of these cl clinical trials that we've done, probably the use of bone protective agents has been under 10% for yes. the patients that are enrolling in the trials. Yes. And that was the key thing that they found uh, with the ERA trial. So. Yes. And these are patients on clinical trial, so they're seeing yes. really, you know, these are doctors who are yeah. good enough to be opening these clinical trials, or organized enough, I should say, in their systems to be opening these clinical trials, and we're forgetting it. Exactly. And so we just need to, we need to get on the ball. So treatment of men with MCRPC continues to evolve rapidly. General principles continue to hold true. Use of a secondary or targeted agent after the first has failed is generally not going to be effective for our patients, not in a meaningful way, not in a prolonged way. Germline and somatic genetic testing or standard of care in MCRPC, if we haven't done it before, we should do it now and use it to potentially guide family counseling and treatment decision making. Genetic testing can identify DNA repair defect mutations that can be targeted by PARP inhibitors or MSI high status that can be treated with pembrolizumab. Letitian PSMA 617 is an option after progression of disease on docetaxel and an AR targeted agent. Patients do have to be selected with a PSMA PET for, for treatment with lutetium. And at this point, at least, the label still says that it has to be a gallium PSMA PET, so everyone should be aware of that. NCCN guidelines were actually just published to say that a DCFPYL PSMA PET could also be an option, but that's not what the label says. We're still waiting to see what will be covered by insurance. And, I think uh, that's very interesting, I mean, because that's what we're trying to struggle with, because we, we don't have gallium available in our neighborhood. 
Yes. So are these patients going to not get lutetium and... I hope you not. Know, yeah. I hope not. So I think that's one of the reasons that the NCN guidelines yeah. came down clearly that these uh, tracer, we should be agnostic to the PSMA PET right. tracer to allow patients access. At this point, there's actually a hold on lutetium um, because right. of manufacturing concerns, which we hope and expect to be resolved within four to six weeks. Um, but there are, there are, these are challenges that we as a field are trying to work out. How do we get these drugs yeah. to patients? You know, and I'm glad we have this because we have so many patients now that are, you know, living longer because of all these other therapies, and then we're running out. Yes. And it's nice to have something else if we don't have a clinical trial for those patients. I agree. And remember bone health so we, so we keep those patients alive to get their other, oh. other treatments. I hope that wasn't thunder. Um, I think it was. <laughs> that's concerning. Okay. Let's hope the roof doesn't leak. Yes. Oh, we're, on the, we're not on the top floor anyway. Yes. Um, I have a question about, um, I know you had it in that, your beginning slide. The I thought you did a beautiful job of the colors and moving through the sequence. And you had Cipulusal you had, uh, T listed. And I was just curious, where does that fit in yeah. this? Because obviously it was FDA approved in 2010 before any of this other stuff. And does the survival data from the quartile data or even the proceed registry resonate at all in light of the other stuff? I think it does. And I think it, it certainly does after the triplet combination has come out. So we may have patients who are progressing to MCRPC after the maintenance AR-targeted agent post-docetaxel who are relatively asymptomatic or low symptom burden, don't necessarily have liver metastases because those are reasons not to use CIPT. Uh, and I think that CIPT could absolutely fit into that space. That's where I commonly think about it, in that first-line MCRPC setting. And I do say, have to say, I try to sneak it in uh, in any patient who has a low symptom burden. And I know that I'm, in most patients, going to be moving to my next treatment relatively soon. But some, I've had, you know, no disease progression for over a year for some guys. And you never know who it's going to be. I agree with you. I think that's a great point. Uh, we try to get it in. It's only going to be a five-week treatment. And you can get it in and then start the other treatment right after that. Yes. So, uh, and I know in our neighborhood, a lot of the oncologists don't believe in CIPT. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, I'm a believer. I believe at in the right level time. one evidence. It's a phase three trial with survival benefits. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard to disagree with, with that. Yeah. I have a question about the CARD trial. So if we have a patient that is progressing on an NHT, but they never saw a docetaxel, would you consider giving them cabazitaxel? I mean, it's not, you yeah. can't do it before they've had docetaxel, and do you think that they tolerate cabazitaxel uh, better? These are great questions from a, for a multidisciplinary team to think about, I think. So, um, so you can sometimes get it. You can always appeal to insurance, and there are a couple reasons why you might want to do it. So especially when you give cabazitaxel at the 20 milligram per meter squared dose, uh, you actually may have a little less fatigue, fewer nail changes, maybe um, better tolerability, essentially, than docetaxel. And this was tested in the first TANA trial, uh, where they looked at different doses of cabazitaxel versus docetaxel, and actually looked like the the, um, the safety profile and the uh, quality of life was a little bit better maybe in the cabazitaxel 20 milligrams per meter squared. Neuropathy also very importantly better. So if you have a patient who has pre-existing neuropathy, for example, you could make an argument to use cabazitaxel prior to docetaxel, and, and I've been able to get that approved in that setting, and people tolerate it well. Mm -hmm. the, the concern, you know, a medical oncologist is always planning for a rainy day. So the concern is, you know, if you use up cabazitaxel, then, you know, what are you going to go to? Now we actually 
actually have a lot more options. So if that's something that's of concern for your patient, keeping the patient's neuropathy well now is probably more important than you know saving the cabazitaxel for the future. I found that patients do tolerate it better than they do docetaxel because of that yeah. as well. So. Yeah. We want to open it up for other questions. So we're 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 uh, want to thank Dr. Morgan's and and Dr. Karsh for outstanding talks. And um, I can't. I mean, it's hard to imagine how many advances we've had since this course started ten years ago. I mean, we didn't have much to talk about ten years ago. Now we have a lot to talk about. But questions from the floor. Any you know anybody comments from other countries on experiences you've had where we have. Uh, about 15, you know, 15 minutes left. If anyone has questions, we'd love to hear your comments. And please come up to the microphone. Yep, because this is, uh, yeah, we're on, we're on, we're on uh, live we're, stream. We're on, we're on live screen, so you're on TV. <laughs> I like to make uh, uh, about the triple treatment. If you have a patient with a sensitive uh, hormone metastatic uh, uh, prostate cancer, and he, the treatment is the triple treatment, and this guy uh, progresses. Uh, and the genetic testings are negative. And I heard that lutetium is not available right now in U.S. because of the problem with the, the with Pfizer. What what is your next step? So I th just the question was, so let, you have a, I believe, a, you know, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. You pull the trip trigger for the triple therapy, and then it fails. So maybe um, since you gave that, you started with that, maybe you you start with Larry to answer that question. Well, I think that I would, uh, first of all, consider a trial if we have one available. Uh, if it fails, they now become metastatic castration-resistant. It depends on whether or not they're symptomatic or not, but I think Dr. Morgan's talked about maybe trying to get CYP-T in there. And I don't know if we have that, you have that available, because I know it's not available in Europe, but that would be one consideration. Uh, I think that uh, you could, I mean, and you should do genetic testing to make sure that you uh, have not missed something like uh, an HRR mutation where you could uh, possibly give them um, a, a PARP inhibitor. Uh, you may want to consider uh, going on to, would you use cabazitaxel at that yep. point? Cabazitaxel or radium or once lutetium is available, if you have a PSMA PET positive disease, mm -hmm. you could use lutetium. So there, there still are options. I think it depends on how long it took. Uh, the oh, question yeah, we, is, we would we rechallenge? Would we rechallenge them with docetaxel? Yep. And uh, I think it would depend on how long it's been since they were on docetaxel. If they progressed within maybe a year, I think that they probably won't respond to it. Agreed. But if it's a longer period of time, do you agree that you Absolutely. would rechallenge them? Yeah, and, and it can be really effective for some patients to rechallenge, especially if it's been a few years that they've been on that AR-targeted agent. They, it's not that they failed docetaxel, to your point. It's that we gave them a prescribed duration. They completed the course, and so they very well may be sensitive to retreatment. You know, one, one kind of question that comes up, if, if on, related to Dr. Karsh's talk, if you go back to the original AD, you know, when ADT was what we had, 
Um, Dr. Hussein, who was mentioned earlier, had a really important paper that looked at seven-month PSA. So if you gave a guy a metastatic prostate cancer, gave the guy ADT, and his, if his PSA dropped to 0.2 or less, essentially undetected, we had a really good survival. 0.2 to 4.0 was okay, but if he natured above four, it was really bad. So in now, uh, now this new, and I just saw there's some new data with I think one of the uh, possibly ENZA or APA that uh, mirrors that with the novel therapy. So do you, have you guys had any experience with pulling the trigger earlier for a suboptimal PSA nadir uh, when you're dealing with the new double or triple therapy? Well, I don't make decisions on PSA alone. And so I wanna look at the doubling times, but if they're getting some benefit from that first regimen, they're probably, that's gonna be the best uh, you know, the longest term that they're going to get. So if they are doing well clinically, they don't have a lot of disease progression or disease progression, and it's just PSA alone, I'll watch them closer, but I don't think I would change therapies. Dr. Morgans, what I, do you think? I would agree. There's a really nice uh, JCO paper that Howard Scher and team did probably eight or more years ago. I, I think the patient was on abiraterone, and um, you can see the PSA rising, but there's no radiographic progression for several years. And so they kept that patient benefiting from abiraterone or what, whatever the agent was, but I think it was abiraterone for years. It was at least three or four years. And so I, I would agree it's, it's um, important, I think, for us to not act necessarily well, on PSA alone. Now, what if you is, had a PSA not a rising that would be CT? A mess. Now, would that now that would be a mess. But this, is, this yeah. is not a rising PSA. This is a PSA that doesn't nadir doesn't properly. Nadir. So, so in other words, it's, yeah. yes, I mean, you're using PSA, but yeah. I mean, she, it, I it, mean, Maha clearly showed that the survival was worse, and this more recent paper in the modern era showed the same thing. But, but it doesn't say that switching treatment actually is gonna fix that problem. Yeah, true. So that's, that's kind of, until we yeah, have, yeah. and there's actually a really interesting study that is in our radiation population that's saying, you know, if you do your ADT radiation for high-risk disease, you've got two years planned ADT. If you don't nadir properly post-radiation, still on your ADT, they're actually adding APA, I believe, versus continuing your ADT to see if that intensification in suboptimal nadir actually makes a difference. I think those are the studies that we would need to do to yeah. answer the question. And until then, I think I would watch that patient closely and just know that they are going to progress earlier than yeah. the other patients who've natured to non-detectable. Yeah. Any other questions from the audience? I love Speak. that you're designing clinical trials for us, Chad. Yeah, That's yeah. fantastic. So, oh, I had another question for you. Where do you think this is going? Do you think clinical trials are going to be incorporating uh, the advanced imaging earlier on and you know, kind of do away with conventional imaging, but it seems like it's gonna take a long time. Yeah, I think that we have to integrate them into our clinical trials now, actually in conjunction with our standard, uh, standard imaging so that we can understand how to interpret and almost maybe have a crosswalk between our old trials and our new data, new trials, um, that's, that's based on a combination maybe of conventional imaging and PSMA PET so that we can say, well, high volume was this in conventional imaging, but it's this in, in PSMA PET. And if we're able to do that in our ongoing trials, we'll be able to at least sort of interpret things better. You know, for the, um, because these trials are global. So again, before we adjourn, for the, country, for the clinicians in the various countries represented, by show of hands, how many people have easy access to a PET, some sort of PET scan? 
how many do not, anybody who does not have easy access? So, you know, a, a number, so again, for these global trials, it's still might Well, not you know, be there I yet. think that in Australia and Europe, they've been doing PSMA a lot longer than we have. And so they've been, you know, doing this, and we're kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to that, don't you think? We're very behind the eight ball, but we're trying to catch up. Yes. <laughs> well, if there are no other questions, um, thank you very much for attending. I want to thank uh, Dr. Morgans and Dr. Karsh, and I hope everyone enjoys the rest of their AUA. Thanks again for coming. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks, John.